before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Grant Williams Podcast. Joining me again is my dear friend, Simon Hunt of Simon Hunt Strategic Services. Simon um, has been a, a phenomenal source of information and insight for me over the years. Um, he's a big picture thinker. He's not afraid to shy away from uh, big topics and complex issues. Uh, and he's always willing to, like me, be skeptical about kind of settled opinions and question them. He's also incredibly well connected uh, in China, particularly, but throughout Asia. Um, and I thought this would be a, a very opportune time to have a chat with him. So without any further ado, here is my conversation with my friend, Simon Hunt. Well, Simon, welcome back to the podcast, my friend. It's uh, it's always delightful to see you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Excellent. I can remember, and I've forgotten how many years ago, when we first did this podcast in the St. Regis Hotel in Singapore. In Singapore, yeah, that was, uh, yeah, it wasn't a podcast back then, but that was, gosh, nine years ago, maybe now. Yeah, I mean, I've completely lost track of time. No, I know, I know, it does, it does seem by. But uh, look, the world, the world keeps turning, and the uh, the intrigue keeps mounting, and so I thought this was a great time to um, sit and have a chat with you about your thoughts on where we are, kind of for the rest of this year. Because I know you know you don't take a, a short term view like a lot of people do. You're, you're very much a big picture thinker. So let's start with just your thoughts on the big global macro picture for the rest of this year, and then I want to dig into China and your latest experiences there. Wow, big question. Yeah, well, I figured if I start with a big question, we can always narrow it down as we go along. <laughs> I think the first point one should make that one has to throw away all the old models based on fiscal and monetary policies, because the real change is war. The de facto war is soon going to turn into an actual war, and that's going to have implications on all markets. It means that inflation is not going to be falling, it's transitory only, that since uh, 2015, the world's broad money has exceeded the value of GDP by over $200 trillion. So that continues to work its way through the system. And then we're going to get uh, energy shocks. We're going to see oil prices probably rising to 150 bucks this year, and between 150 and 200 next year. And the reason for that is China reopening, more supply disruptions, and OPEC no longer supporting the needs of Western Europe and America, but seeing that prices actually reflect the real supply and demand. And then the final kicker is going to be food prices. And that's going to be not only a product of um, fertilizers, et cetera, and grains, et cetera, falling again significantly out of Ukraine and Russia, but weather patterns. What is likely to emerge later this year, according to my friend, uh, Sean Hackett, is the 89-year Glesberg cycle which last resulted in the U.S. Midwest's drought bowl that occurred in the 1930s decade. So this obviously will have huge implications on monetary and fiscal policies. We will see 10-year treasuries rising sharply. 
more late this year and in 2024. Now, in price or yield? I presume you're talking yield. Yield, yield, sorry. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah just checking. Yield. So we've got by 2026, for instance, 10-year uh, treasuries yielding over 10% and maybe as high as 12%. And that's, of course, going to kill off a lot of the highly leveraged global system. And in our view, that's what will lead to a depression starting in or around 2025, add on to the impact of war, and that's what we're going to see. Well, look, we we started with a big question, <laughs> and uh, and and, look, and this is why I love talking to you because um, you know you think about these things, and you're willing to entertain possibilities and probabilities that a lot of people just write off as uh, as just too big for them to get their heads around. And so it's always it's always fun to kick these things around with you. So let, let's start with uh, war because that's where you started. You know, obviously, we've seen the war in Europe between Ukraine and Russia. And apart from the initial shock and the initial upheaval in energy prices, we've really seen not much, right? I mean, it, it's kind of, it's in the papers every day, but I'm sure most people have stopped reading about it now because it's just kind of one of those things that's omnipresent now. It just carries on in the background kind of thing. Asset markets are far more concerned about interest rates than they are about the war. Supply chains have started to normalise. Energy prices have come way back down again. So let's talk about the kind of war that you described at the beginning there, because that sounds like a much broader and much more kind of all-encompassing conflict. Well, let me answer that question by paraphrasing what Colonel Douglas McGregor said in, in an interview uh, on Wednesday. And I find that he talks much more sense than the whole of the intelligence and defence apparatus uh, in, in the Western Alliance. He basically said that a friend of his just back from Moscow reporting that Russia is preparing for a war against America and NATO countries that will last at least 30 months. And when you look at the dots that are being built up, it makes all make sense. Russia is, uh, according to reports that I read, uh, has accumulated something of the order of 700,000 military personnel around the borders of Ukraine and uh, equal numbers of uh, military equipment. And then you hear what um, uh, the West is planning to do with tanks, uh, fighter planes, Poland creating a military force of 250-odd thousand people, rumors of call-ups in Germany, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there is obviously a, a, a military buildup which is very likely to spread outside the borders of, um, of Ukraine. When you go back to really what are the, why is Russia so concerned and why is America so concerned? And you find that Russia's major concern is security of its borders in a world where we're going increasingly into hypersonic technology. What worries Russia is the placement of hypersonic missiles on its borders of Ukraine which would be able to hit uh, Moscow and St. Petersburg and other cities in under three to four minutes. So that's Russia's big concern. And it goes back, come on, it goes back to the early 1990s when NATO was a supposedly a defensive mechanism, but increasingly became an offensive one as it got closer and closer to Russia's borders. And for America, if NATO lost the battle over Ukraine, Many countries outside the Western Alliance will no longer see America as being omnipotent. And you'll find 
then that a lot of those countries will be joining BRICS+. Plus. I mean, I had a, a meeting with a number of interesting stroke-informed guys here yesterday in Dubai. And the conversation was at a Starbucks, perfectly relaxed, chatting away. Every single one of them was talking about de-dollarization and uh, the use of gold as a medium of exchange in one form or another. Each one had a, a different answer, but it all came down to one conclusion, de-dollarization and gold coming back as a medium of exchange, not just as an asset value. Well, let me, hang on, let me, let me let's, let's pause there. I, I just want to go back. Let's, let's talk about this conflict because one would have to say that for Russia to be preparing to take on the US and NATO when it is struggling to make inroads in Ukraine would seem to be... Well, that is a, quest, that is a, well, a big well, question, Well, I think when Russia first went into Ukraine, if you'd have polled people and said, will this war still be going on a year hence, people would have said there's no chance of that, right? Something, either Russia will get a quick win or Russia will get concessions and back down. The fact that the conflict is still going on, it certainly surprises me. It surprises most people I talk to. And just picturing Russia, let's put nukes aside because obviously that changes all the calculations and maybe we'll come back to that in a second. But if you want to engage in a conflict with the whole of NATO, it seems a real stretch for me to think that Russia would have any chance, based on what we've seen in Ukraine, of winning a conflict like that. We could have a stalemate, I guess, but ultimately there is an awful lot more firepower that can be brought to bear from the West if it was actively engaged in a face-to-face war with Russia rather than some kind of half-assed proxy war where we'll send you a couple of tanks, maybe, but we don't really want to because it doesn't look good. And, you know, if, if this de- develops into a, a wider conflict, it's very difficult for me to see how Russia comes out of that as the winner unless we get into a nuclear conflagration. And even, even then, I, I don't think that's something Russia wins. Am I wrong? You're seldom wrong, but I think you are on this occasion. Okay, great. I, I love being wrong because I, I, I didn't find out why. So tell me why. Uh, first of all, Russia's initial entry into Ukraine was with kid gloves. I think their intelligence was completely misinformed. Uh, this, is, I, this is not me talking. I'm paraphrasing what the experts that I listen to tell me, that we're all Slavs. We don't want to kill anybody. Uh, we went in hoping that Ukraine would support us and uh, we would have a, uh, an easy victory, etc. But what was forgotten by whoever in, in Moscow was that since 2014, NATO had built up at least a military-trained Ukrainian force of some 250,000, established massive defense positions, threw in a lot of um, military equipment, etc., so the initial entry into uh, Ukraine was um, disaster is too strong a word, but Russia met more setbacks than they were than they had planned for. I mean, it was only in the last maybe six months or so that the kid gloves have come off, and uh, the realization in Moscow is this is a real war, and we have to contend that it is a real war between America and NATO. Uh, and as Colonel Douglas McGregor said, Russia has prepared for it. Their armament factories for many months have been running 100%, 24-7. According to the experts, their military technology is way superior to America's or to 
um, uh, any NATO member country, their defense systems uh, against a nuclear attack are massive. They, they have nuclear shelters that can support 40 million people, and they're being upgraded, as I heard uh, you know, very recently. So I think to, to say that um, America and NATO will be victorious over Russia is a very big question mark, which the experts such as Douglas McGregor frankly laugh at. And not just uh, McGregor, but Scott Britter and other people that I talk to uh, in, 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 in America. People who know the defense, people who know the defense situation. Right, right. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it, there's been a, a concerted effort in the Western media to paint Russia as completely incompetent and, you know, they're, Absolutely. they're, they're military Absolutely. falling to pieces. And, yeah. you know, we are, yeah. so I, and I totally understand that. And I'm sure that's a long way from the truth. Um, but still, you know, it's, it's the, the fact that Russia hasn't been able to subjugate Ukraine in a year and the, the vast majority of which was fought in, you know, the best weather you could have for such a thing. You know, it's, it started in the spring. So they've had basically the spring, the summer and the fall to, to achieve that victory. And the fact that it really seems that they're unable to do that to me, uh, I find interesting in itself because w- whether you want to believe that the, the Russian military is in disarray or you want to believe that it's a lot stronger than we think, it doesn't really matter. The, the results on the battlefield are such that they haven't been able to achieve a conclusive victory over Ukraine in a year. So I'm fascinated to, to understand the difference between taking on Ukraine and being bogged down in a, in, a, in a conflict for a year and having an overt conflict with the broader West, including the US and NATO. I just can't see how the Russian military would be capable with all these weapons of countering that kind of force when they're struggling to get a decisive victory in Ukraine. It it just doesn't add up to me. And I I don't believe everything I read in the media about how abject the Russian military is. But because of that, it makes it even more surprising that they haven't been able to secure some kind of victory. I think the answer, one answer to that question is uh, the way that Russia actually enters a war proper. It's a grinding operation. It's not you come in and do everything straight away. Again, according to the experts, Ukraine has probably lost at least 150,000 dead and probably another 200 odd thousand wounded. And against that, the ratio, so the experts say, is 10 to 1. Russia, in, in recent months, not in the early stages, has been, from what I piece together, has been um, preparing in a very thoughtful and methodical way. And we will probably see in the coming weeks, if not months, and probably certainly in the coming weeks, a much more decisive operation, which has been well planned. And the first thing they do, which they're doing now, is take out key installations, whether military or infrastructure. Once that's done, and they're satisfied that... um, the odds are in their favor, they make a move. Clearly, they don't want an open war against America and NATO. But if you listen to the various people in Washington, they're obviously planning it. They want, they want to, they want to basically destroy Russia. And it comes back to the big picture, which is that 
America has always been worried, and Brzezinski was part of Brzezinski's platform, that if any one or more countries controlled Eurasia, which Halford Mackinder called the heartland, mm -hmm. then they controlled the world. And what we saw evolving until the Ukraine crisis was a growing alliance between Germany, Russia, and China. And to the warmongers in Washington, this meant that those countries would control the heartland. So really, it's, um, it's not just a war between Russia and NATO. The first motive was to destroy that alliance. And uh, blowing up of Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines was almost an attack on, on Germany. Yeah. How is Germany going to respond? I mean, I think there is a big risk that this government will fall sometime. Don't ask me when. The Scholz government. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that um, whatever you might like to call them, the Bismarckians, German industry will become the powerhouse again of the country and through back channels will negotiate at some point in the future. I'm not saying the coming year, but at some point in the future, a new alliance with Russia and China. And then what do they do with America? You go back to what was always being said 10, 20 years ago, our growth is eastwards. So I, 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 I think one of the consequences of this war when it ends, when it ends, is this new alliance being struck between Germany and maybe some other European countries. What then happens to the EU? And what then happens to NATO? Sure. No, no. These are big questions that you, know, you can... You can put some dots around them, but they're important questions. Because what then happens if, if Germany is part of a Russian and a Chinese alliance, do they then become a member of BRICS Plus? And if they become a member of BRICS Plus, do they then become a member of the new non-dollar trading and currency platform? Well, let's 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 get get into that because it's, it's, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad. No, I'm glad you took us there because it, you know what's happened since. Um, since World War II is we've really had alliances that were built on ideals, right? We've had this, whether it's political ideals or otherwise, we've had alliances that were built on ideals. And that this was Russia was cast out because of the rise of communism in the country. The Chinese uh, Communist Party was also kind of this ideological boogeyman. And what's been interesting to watch to me as we've seen this kind of age of globalization first kind of come to a halt and then start to go into reverse. We've seen, again, I, I think you're absolutely right, this de-dollarization thing is absolutely a thing, and that's because the dollar has reached the end of its useful natural life, as it was always going to do if you give people the ability to print and spend and promise and, and, um, and go into debt. They will, of course they will. But what's interesting about that is you now reach a point where inflation is the main problem, the debt around the world is the main problem, and suddenly it makes sense to have coalitions based on mutual interest rather than political beliefs. And if that is the case, if we are entering a phase where you align with people that help your mutual self-interest, then I think you're absolutely right. I think you're absolutely right that the natural partners for Russia is the EU and China. The natural partners for China is, is the EU. And you, had, you do have this, this, this heartland, right? And Mackinder and Brzezinski are required reading 
for me, for anybody right now. And I know you've been talking about them for decades now. I think, I think it was you that first introduced me to them 20 years ago. But if that's the case and we are entering a phase where mutual self-interest dictates alliances, then I can absolutely see what you say. And, and that puts America in a very different and very tricky situation. Which is one reason why they may see that um, war is the only answer to retain our hegemony. Well, it's the answer if, if you win. It's the answer if you win. If you win, yeah, sure. But many of the experts say they won't win. So what then? Do they, do they, I mean, the sensible thing for Washington to do is we've reached a, a, a phase where the sensible approach is to negotiate a spheres of interest. But is there, is there enough sense in Washington? Not when you listen, not when you listen to many of the the leaders there at the moment. So let's so let's let's um let's switch to this de-dollarization thing because again, um, you know, the, the BRICS plus is something that you've been talking about since long before it was really a thing. Um, where do you see the state of de-dollarization and from your perch in the Middle East there and your contacts in in China and, and right across Asia? What's their perspective on this move to de-dollarize? Because in the West, it's very much viewed by most people as an irrelevance and it's not big enough to worry about. And yes, all these exchanges are setting these these payment rails up that you can transact oil in other currencies, but there's only a small amount going through, so it doesn't matter. I, I take the other side of that, but I'm curious as to know what, what your perspective on all this is from, from where you are and who you talk to. My personal view having had several conversations, is that decisions have been taken in this part of the world to shift away from the dollar in a step-by-step approach. I mean, for instance, a few months ago, Saudi, so I'm told, sold some oil to China and received RMB in return. And what did Saudi do with the RMB? They bought gold. And they bought gold probably through the, the Shanghai Gold Exchange which, since it opened up, have sold to the Chinese public something of the order of 23,000 tons of gold. Now, if you look at the trade between Russia and China, Russia is running a big trade surplus. I've forgotten the number, but it's quite large. That surplus is is held, I'm told, in a gold differential account with the PBOC. I think that when you look at not just um, Saudi, but other Gulf countries, the trade between China and the Gulf countries is going to increase significantly. Exports of energy from the Gulf to China and from China to the Gulf, they will be exporting many more industrial and other products to meet the growing industrialization of the region. I suspect without knowing that a similar gold differential account will be held between China and the Gulf. There will be, obviously, there will be times when the Gulf countries may well like to invest in the bond market in China. And how will they hedge it? Through the gold market. So it all comes back to gold. I mean, we had the other day the announcement from Ghana that Ghana will export gold in return for oil. And I was with the big, the big um, gold merchant slope trader here just the other day. 
who who gets a lot of gold from from Ghana, and he basically confirmed it. Well, this well, the Ghana situation is very interesting for me because you know, when that the announcement was made, the general response from most people was, "Yeah, but it's only Ghana." Right, which I just see as such a short-sighted. <laughs> it's such a short-sighted way to think about it, right? Because yes, it is only Ghana, right? So, in the bigger picture, does Ghana matter? Probably not to an awful lot of people. Not, However, not on Ghana, but it, it, it's an example. Exactly right. Spread. Exactly right. And these, you know, you, you mentioned the Shanghai Gold Exchange transacting twenty-three thousand tons of gold to the Chinese public, let alone the other gold that went through that. And I remember probably four or five years ago when the and the Shanghai Gold Exchange was launched, people talking about, well, look at the volume, it doesn't matter, right? And here we are 23,000 tonnes later. And these things absolutely matter. You know, the, the, the fact that all kinds of payment rails are being put in place. You know, we've got the chip system as a settlement system now. We've got all kinds of bilateral contracts being struck to transact oil in local currencies with gold increasingly used as a reference point. I mean, this alternative to the SWIFT system, this alternative to the petrodollar system, is absolutely being put in place brick by brick. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in full yeah. view of everybody, yeah, but most yeah. people aren't paying attention. So you know, I, I've seen the reaction to that in the West, and I've seen how people think about it when you talk to them over here. It's really, it's either too big for them to contemplate because it's such a change in the way everything works, or they, they generally think it doesn't matter. But what is the perspective in the Middle East and in Asia around this shift and where this is all going? Well, as I said before, they see this coming and they're going to be party to it. The idea or the, 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 the um, platform is that we do it slowly to avoid any major disruptions to the system. But these things don't work that way once they start. And it can be, I mean, war, I think, is going to be um, the catalyst for this becoming a step-by-step approach to actually becoming, well, it's tomorrow. I mean, let me throw out a complete speculation, not a forecast. I emphasize that. Clearly, with a new government in Israel and with America and Israel simulating attacks on Iran and with what's going on in Iran itself and the meetings that have been taking place between the president of Iran, Russia, China, there's ongoing diplomatic uh, meetings taking place. What really is going on? I mean, from what I pick up locally and from other sources, Iran is actually has made preparations should there be an attack on the country. They have acquired Russian and Chinese anti-ship missiles, state of the art. They have also made preparations to close the straits. So if there is an attack, one response is going to be to close the straits down. What does that do to not just oil prices, but the quadrillion derivative market? In one false step, you can say China and Russia and Iran, victory. That's an utter speculation. It's not a forecast. But I say to friends of mine, we need to watch it because it's something that could happen. Frankly, if if the Iranians aren't preparing for that, they're out of their minds, right? Because it's clear that that's... That's sure. a, a definite danger to them. But look, let's pivot to China, because I want to make sure I, I get your insight on that as well before we run out of time. So let's talk about China, the reopening. Now, I'm not sure when the last time you were able to go and visit China, probably a while ago, but I know, you know, for... November 2019. 
which for you is, got, is a lifetime, <laughs> right? I mean, you've, you've been going there for 30 years, four times a year. So that's that's a lifetime. But obviously you have a, a, an incredible network on the ground in China. Yeah. So give us, if you can, a little perspective on what's happening in China, both from um, the reopening perspective on, on a kind of bottoms-up level, but also what you hear talking about the supposed strife within the party and the pressure Xi Jinping's been under because of his COVID response. Let's deal with the second part of that question. Okay. How much of dissent there is within the leadership, nobody's going to know. I suspect there has been some, but not enough to change uh, Xi's position or the leadership's. I think you can see that the initial impact of that strange balloon story, what was the the first impact? Blinken cancels his trip to China, which said to me that somebody in the leadership didn't want him to come. That in itself has big implications. And it goes back to the strategic alliance that I continue to call it between Russia and China and with Iran. Um, so, um, but I don't think this changes um, the leadership position in China at all. I think there is an important change in that the new leadership. There's a lot of reformists there, including the incoming prime minister. So um, as a friend said to me, she can change his spots as events determine, but he won't change his major position, which is that the Communist Party supports the SOEs and not the private sector. Private sector goes in waves of the government support to the government retrenching. And you're in a period of government support because the government needs the private sector to stimulate the economy. Where are we now? I think that, first of all, the consumer over the next, until say mid-year, will spend some of its accrued savings, only some because they see a very uncertain future, not just domestically, but internationally. So there'll be a flurry of spending, which we'll see in the second quarter. This will coincide with a spurt of infrastructure spending. What happened was that in the fourth quarter of last year, a lot of infrastructure projects, both local and central government, were approved, but never got released because government officials did not know to whom they would be reporting change of government. So by the end of March, all of that is in place. So those approved projects will come running out into the system. So you'll get a combination of consumer spending and infrastructure projects being released into the economy. So my bottom line is that we will see peak growth in China in the second quarter. That does not mean there's no growth in the rest of the year, but the peak growth will be in the second quarter. What worries me is the increasing international tensions and with the risk that America makes some stupid move over Taiwan that will force China to respond. That's my big worry. 
Well, I'm glad you brought Taiwan up because I wanted to ask you about that. Um, obviously, everybody in the West has an opinion on Taiwan and everybody is either 100% convinced the Chinese will try and take Taiwan or 100% convinced that they won't. So, um, you know, Where do I, I stand? Well, look, I, I, I think... Halfway. Um, yeah, well, look, nice. And it's nice to find someone who stands halfway, you know, because I've heard an incredibly credible explanation for why they don't need to from Louis, our mutual friend Louis Garth. Very well, I pragmatic. Support, I, support, I support his view. Right. They don't, they don't need to, they don't have to. Right. Because the KMT won hands down the local elections, and they will probably win hands down in the general election in 2024. And with the KMT in power in Taiwan, they will find enough compromises between Beijing's stance and Taiwan's stance to come to uh, a solution. Interestingly, and I've forgotten his name, the real brains in the leadership over the last three administrations has been given the task of thinking through the Taiwan situation. That is a massive change. So bottom line, China has no need to invade or blockade. The problem is that there will come a red line if Washington makes some move like announcing we support an independent Taiwan, and we will enforce that independence with military power, etc. Blah, 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 blah. That is the red line, which China will be forced to go yeah, and do some. Understandably so. Understandably so. I yeah, mean, that, yeah, that yeah, seems, yeah. That seems fair enough if that's what if that's what the US does. Okay, so so let's switch back. When we began the show and you, and you went through your, your big picture, you got to a, a, a depression-type situation beginning in 2025. So so what does that mean for 2023, 2024? Um, how, do, how do the ebbs and flows, do you think, play out between here and then? Good question. First of all, we're going to have a big correction in global equity markets between now and around the middle of the year, brought about by 10-year treasuries going from wherever we are now, 3.6 to about 5%, plus the war scenario. So we will probably see American equity markets and most in the rest of the world, excepting China, falling by about 30%. That will scare the Fed. And with an election a year later, we will start seeing the Fed in the second half of the year starting to ease. And you'll see 10-year treasuries probably falling to 3.5%, something like that. The dollar then will start falling sharply. Resurgence of inflation. Equities and commodities take off reaching new peaks by the end of 2024. At that point, global inflation, pick a number out of the, out of the sky, plus 13%. US CPI exceeding the 1980 peak of 13.5%. And that's a manipulated CPI. So those are the conditions that are then going to create the depression, which will start about a year later. But between sometime around the middle of this year and the end of 2024, you're going to have the last hurrah. The big party, but again, that's that's going to be driven by policy, not. not it's, it's wild pol growth. policy plus uh, inflation plus food prices. I go back to what I said earlier about uh, food prices, the Glesberg cycle, uh, weather patterns. It's going to be almost a hyperinflation period. So everybody, I mean, take industry. 
uh, your big moves in take copper as the example your big moves in copper prices over the last 30 40 years has been this shift of inventory of of copper components products within this huge manufacturing chain and what we're seeing now is the inventory is being depleted so once we start seeing a recovery the manufacturing global manufacturing sector starts to replenish those inventories and with a falling dollar inflation rising they will say instead of having x as my inventory i'm going to have x plus one or plus two that's what's going to drive mm -hmm. prices of everything upwards and then you know you, you, with interest rates up at you know 10 percent plus that kills off the, the 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 global leverage system yeah not before time too well listen you, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to go here because I love talking about this stuff with you, uh, even though I know exactly the buttons that it's going to push to a lot of people. But you talked about the Glasberg cycle. So let's talk about the weather patterns, because you know, the last time you came on the show was, was a while. It was a while ago. It was uh, over a year ago. And, and you came on right after uh, my friend Felix Zulaf. And Felix had made an aside that he believed that there was potential for the kind of outlier the black swan to be that we went into a period of global cooling based on his cycle work and you came on shortly after us and said oh, i heard what felix said and I, I i've read similar research and i think there is a problem uh, there is a potential that this could be what we have to think about rather than global warming and any time any time i am confronted with a, a, a narrative that is that firmly entrenched that this is exactly how things are going to be i'm always curious to hear the other side of it and with global warming relabeled climate change, which I guess does at least give you the latitude to be wrong in both directions, I am genuinely curious as to hear more on this, this idea of global cooling. Because, you know, I've looked at the science and, and I can see where the science is pointing towards climate change being of a warming nature. But I never dismiss guys like you and guys like Felix and the research that you've read that says, look, there is another potential way this could go. So, so talk to me a little bit about that so we can get a bit more perspective on it rather than kind of a 10-second soundbite like we did last time. Oh, wow. That's an interview on itself. Well, possibly. <laughs> I need to bone up for that. Um, where do we start? I think that climate change and in inverted commas is a political game that has been enacted by the Davos crowd and all the elites that support the Davos crowd. There's one thing is to clean up the world, misuse of plastics, fossil fuels, etc. It's quite another to accuse CO2 emissions as causing warming weather. On the clean-up side, I can tell a personal story. About 10 years ago, I was in a valley in central China visiting factories. In the middle of the day, the driver, when it was a bright, sunny day, the driver had to turn his headlights on in order to see the road. That's how bad it was. But that is not the cause of warming weather. Weather patterns come in long-term cycles lasting 40, 70 years. And you can see it from ice cores, uh, tree rings. They all go back thousands and thousands of years. They all come up with the same story. That this is a pattern. And I know the real scientists would best remain unnamed, but they are scientists in institutions that have to know about long-term weather patterns, not the political world. They all come up with exactly the same, same comment. Nothing to do with CO2 business. It's all part of long-term weather cycles. Uh, when I look at the amount of money that's being spent on wind farms and 
solos and um, EVs, etc. I worry that when this weather pattern changes sometime by 2030, what are consumers going to say? They're going to erupt. Why are we spending so much of our income on EVs and renewables and no fossil fuels when the weather patterns are not warming? They're getting bloody cold. So like Felix, I think this is a black swan. So yeah, I, I'm fascinated with this because because I'm not a scientist, so I, so I read this stuff, but I don't have the scientific chops to question it myself. But I, you know, I'm I'm always interested in in reading thoughtful opinions on both sides of of the debate, and you know, when you get into that, the case that each side makes, if you read it in isolation, is incredibly compelling, right? You, there's 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 always data that will back up severe global warming. And I've read data. That if I could interrupt you. Please go ahead. You're a guest. You can do whatever the hell you want. There's always data, but how much of it is real data and how much of it is manipulated data? Well, th- this is true. A this lot of true. the scientists who come out very strongly on um, global warming are basically paid scientists. The real independent guys are not paid up. And their case is based on the science of weather patterns. It was a very good um, on YouTube. Somebody sent me a YouTube of some scientists in the Arctic actually coming up with cores going back thousands of years, actually showing you that this is part of the long-term weather cycle. I mean, friends have shown me tree rings. Same thing. Well, it, it is interesting to me because, as I said, the science is supposedly settled and it's become, you know, the, the biggest tell for me has always been how anyone even daring to question the narrative, say, well, hang on, what about this, as you're doing, right? What about these long-term patterns? If you do that, you're instantly demonized, right? You're, oh, you're no instantly question. written off. No you're question. Instantly, and, I, and I find that to be doesn't, very doesn't mean we're doesn't mean we're wrong, though. No, 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 I, I agree. Uh, look, as I say, I, I don't know the answer, right? I, I, I read the evidence I'm presented, and I read new evidence when it arises, and I, I always remain healthily skeptical because... You know, when are we ever a hundred percent right about anything? You know, it's it's, it's particularly when yeah. it's guessing about the future. So I, I'm I'm just I'm always curious about this stuff. And as I said, for me, any time that to put this in air quotes, the establishment demonizes anyone that takes the other side of something, my ears always prick up immediately. That that's always a huge tell to me. So I'm I'm always interested, and I just wanted to spend ten minutes talking about that with you because the last time it was such a quick piece. We'll, we'll, you and I will probably start both getting uh, hate mail now. And, and if you do, you can just forward them on to me because it's my fault for asking you to talk about it. <laughs> well, listen, Simon. Yeah, I gather um, you've, got, you've got quite a lot of hate mail, if I seem to remember. Well, and again, you know, look, it's it's people have a right to express their opinions. And I'm I'm always interested in those. And it, look, it, it wasn't, people weren't rude to me, but they were saying, I can't believe you would have these guys on and let them say this. I'm like, well, why not? You know, I mean, it, it doesn't change what you believe. Maybe someone says something that makes you think, oh, I didn't know that. It, I, I just don't understand why the people fact, get the fact, so upset Grant, about that they, Grant, the fact that they reacted that way just indicated how sensitive they are to the issue, that they probably invested so heavily in climate change, whether through renewables or whatever, they don't want to hear the other side of the story. Well, yeah, I mean, look, people don't want to hear people putting forward the other side of the story. That, that's the interesting thing to me. You know, I'm, I'm always open-minded about this stuff. And I, and I, you know, I'm willing to hear both sides of every argument, always. And I, and I think that's a much more sensible way to go than to, than to say, right, this vision of the future is 100% correct. 
because how is any vision of the future? It can't be. It can't yeah. be, you know. So anyway, um, listen, there's one more thing I want to talk to you about because finally you are going to start being a little bit more public with your views and a little bit more um, geared towards letting more people have access to them. So, so tell me about that little project. I know you're planning on coming out with some means to communicate with people beyond your kind of core group of clients that you've had for decades now. How's that project going? Yeah, uh, hopefully by Tuesday, the project will be launched. We will have a new website, uh, which will have a different name, which will be simon-hunt.com. And on that website, uh, we will be issuing a newsletter every month, which won't be long in words, but um, long in, in truth, as it were. And there will be a teaser on the website if you wanted to connect. Uh, and you connect, and then you obviously pay either monthly or annually. So that's what we're developing. And as I said, it should be off, up and yeah, running next yeah, well, week. It's, 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 it's been a long time. It's been it's been a long time coming. Um, so by the time this podcast, by the time people listen to this, it should be there. So Simon Hunt dot com, which is which is great. And listen, I apologise in advance for any opening hate mail you might get based on the last ten minutes of this conversation. But uh, but I'm sure you're. Uh, I'm, you're, I mean, you're I'm here. used I'm used to it. I'm I, know, I know you are. I, know I mean, you I, are. Go, I go to the, <clears throat> I go to these copper conferences between producers and fabricators. And there's one coming up in May. And the last one, they did not want to hear the other side of the story, period. There were no, no opportunities to ask questions, to show the other side of the story. There was no speaker showing the other side of the story. And I think it's symptomatic of the world today. There is no other story. It's only climate change. Well, look, I'm delighted that you're going to have your own platform to to share your views, not just about that, because obviously that's that's a tiny, tiny, tiny part of what you talk about, but the, but the insight that you've given me over the years, particularly around China, but also around these big global um, shifts has been absolutely valuable to me. So I, I thank you for that, and I, and I look forward to the new website, and I'll be happy to kind of help you spread the word in any way I can. So, so, so thanks again, Simon, for taking this hour to, to sit and chat with me. Well, thank you. Always great to chat to you. And uh, anything you can help increase the audience for the new website would be greatly appreciated. Consider it done, my friend. I will talk to you soon. Thanks again. Okay. Cheers. All the best. Bye. I, I do enjoy every time I get a chance to chat with Simon. Um, as you saw, he's not afraid to shy away from topics that a lot of people will shy away from, um, climate change being one of them, but also some of the bigger picture views on China and um, Taiwan and America. You know, I, hopefully you, like me, will keep an open mind. I know that whenever the subject of climate comes up, it pushes many, many people's buttons. If you've been triggered in any way by that discussion, I apologise. But for me, um, it's always important to just keep an open mind and, and check in with the people that say, you know, the settled science that everyone is saying you must believe, there are questions about it. And have you ever thought about this? And these, these weather patterns, these multi-multi-decade weather patterns, I find fascinating. And uh, when any time someone like Simon or Felix Zulav talks about things that are non-consensus, I'm always going to listen. Whether I end up coming down on their side or not, I'm never going to not listen to those thoughts. Um, the rest of it was fascinating. You know, the, the Russia stuff, again, you know, I, I think deliberately none of us really know what's going on. We've fed a narrative that's pretty consistent. Uh, and again, I always question whenever I'm fed a narrative that's consistent across media platforms and across time, which certainly the ongoing conflict in Ukraine has been. 
But it's always just a, a fun chance to have a chat with Simon and, and get these big picture ideas and, and kick them around. So I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I will be back with another edition of the podcast soon. In the meantime, thank you as always for listening. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.